When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts, or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Hello. How are you all? I recorded this interview with Ben Sinclair from High Maintenance a few weeks ago. Today, I'm recording in a makeshift studio in my back bedroom. We at Death, Sex, and Money are talking a lot about how to be there with you while so much of what's familiar is falling away. More on that later in the show. For now, just enjoy this conversation. Well, one thing that I have been kind of going into this with was hoping that I could distance myself from the divorced stone guy persona that is well-documented. But I am divorced, and I do get stoned. This is Death, Sex, and Money. Why do you want to be friends with your ex? The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. How do you live your life? And need to talk about more. Forgot. Did you want to buy some weed? I'm Anna Sale. In HBO's High Maintenance, Ben Sinclair plays a weed dealer in New York who bikes around the city, shows up at your doorstep, and then opens up his backpack to sell you what you want. So, you're a pot dealer. What's that like? Uh, I just kind of bike around and uh, people call me and, and then I bring them weed. Ben's character sees a lot. The show is much more about human relationships and eccentricities than it is about using drugs. And I love it. The episodes feel like closely observed poems about everyday encounters in New York City. But Ben didn't grow up in New York. He first arrived in the city about a year after college, in the summer of 2007. He came after getting an audition to join the Blue Man Group. But that didn't go well. I remember 
feeling like a lot. My whole life was riding on this audition, and my dad jumped the gun as he tends to, and it was telling everybody that I was in Blue Man Group. And, oh, no. and thank God social media wasn't as popular as it is now because that would have been a disaster. But he bought me like a velvet blue thing in a thrift store that he found like a suit. And then after that, <laughs> I walked around the Lower East Side. I went from bodega to bodega eating just trash it was like this it was the it was a bodega crawl of stress eating like what were you eating oh uh, one i got a i remember a, a little bag of pizza flavored combos from oh, a no, duane reed bad. and then i went across the street and i got a knish a potato knish from somewhere and then a piece of pizza from somewhere else i was freaking out and then uh and then I just decided to stay in New York after that. I was like, well, I have to get something from this situation. Ben couch surfed for a year while he threw himself into whatever acting opportunities he could find. Then he tried training to become a New York City public school teacher, but quickly dropped out of the program. And I was like, all right, no more teaching, no more paying rent. I found an internship, a theater internship on Craigslist that ended up allowing me to live in a, in the lobby of a theater, of a black box theater, for about a year. He lived in a lobby in a theater in midtown Manhattan for a year? Yes, near Bellevue Hospital. The theater was run by a mime named Richmond <laughs> Shepard, who, <laughs> who was 80-something years old at the time, and he uh, bought this theater and filled it he kind of made it a shrine to his mimery, I, I guess. There were pictures of him and Lily Tomlin and white face makeup from oh. 1960. You know, yeah. it was a real weird scene. Holy crap. And What did you sleep on? I slept on a futon that I made him purchase off of Craigslist. And twice a week, his ex-wife would come in and sleep on a foam pad on the stage because she was a children's clown performer. And then she would try to do Reiki on me. And then <laughs> and then at night I would go to sleep and I slept right in front of like this grated window and I would watch the shadows of rats crawl up this grating. So it all felt very, very uh, uh, necessary. And part of that romantic coming to New York story that I really wanted in my boring suburban life when I was young, well, I got it. Ben grew up in the suburbs of Scottsdale, Arizona. His mom was a cantor at a local synagogue. His dad was a teacher. Ben was the youngest of their four kids. I'm actually reading all of this kind of Jungian, Freudian, unconscious stuff right now. And, uh, I, I feel like my status as the youngest of four really had a big part to do with the formation of my personality because there was a very overachiever um, quality to the, the rearing of the children of my family. And, you know, my older eldest sister went to Yale and then both my brothers went to Northwestern. And there was an emphasis on education. And as the youngest, you're like, I got to set my identity up. So 
as you go down the line of siblings, there are less safe ways to get attention. And then as you're trying to claim your identity, by the time you get to the fourth, you're like, all right, well, just don't do what the rest of them did and act out a little bit differently. So I kind of cultivated, I don't, I didn't kind of cultivate anything. I definitely cultivated a personality uh, that was trying to uh, get attention by positive or negative means. Uh, I just wanted attention. And like how early did that start? Oh, bro. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I was, I would just be on like my little tricycle and just pedal as fast as I could straight into the wall, just straight into the wall, <laughs> just to get in, just to get a rise, just to see what would happen. Uh, and in the multitude of introspection that I've been doing for the past, you know, whatever, decades, I've, I've found that uh, it, uh, th- there, there was this pressure to be good uh, always, and by pushing the boundaries of being good, I used to get in a lot of trouble. And so for you, when you, like, you, you would get attention by doing things that that were uh, bad. Um, but, like, when you think about your relationship with your parents when you were a teenager, for example, was it sort of like you were the lovable rebel or or was it kind of like serious um, serious crossing the line that, that, that really stressed out the family? I would call myself a functional rebel. I was very punctual and everything, but I was also experimenting with all sorts of drugs. And ignoring curfews and uh, taking advantage of my tired parents, essentially, who were dealing with, you know, my my high school and middle school times were kind of taken up with focus on my father's health. Uh, he had some health issues spanning many years, uh, those years of my life. So at that point, I kind of... Mm, arguably raised myself. Uh, And, you know, I'm sure everybody at the time was like, oh, this is, this is bad news. Like, you know, there was some vandalism happening. I remember, we used to go out and I guess this is unkind, but we used to take pots, like terracotta pots from people's front yards and then used to drive them to a little secluded ditch and just destroy them with bats. And only now am I reflecting on that as like a a physical execution of internal suburban frustration. Yeah, I would describe being in the suburbs of of Scottsdale, Arizona as a frustrating experience. Did you feel lonely as a kid? Yes, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Even like surrounded by siblings, they were in the house with you at the time when you're growing yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so both of my parents came from military families. My parents met on a Andrews Air Force Base when they were twelve, uh, and they've 12. been together. Yeah, dude. My my. Whoa. I think my dad was fourteen. My mother is twelve, and then they've been together since. Wow. All of my siblings have are with spouses that they've met in college. I don't think anybody in my family has dated, like, 
you know, outside of the structured education system. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, my family is pretty. I like I only recently kind of. Why do I say kind of? I only recently took into stock that the military background that my that affected my family has a lot to do with us repressing things and just doing the right thing and having a very conditional, if you do this, then this will happen. And you all you have to do is go to college and, you know, fitting life into neat little boxes and achievements. Yeah, a real faith in rules. A faith in rules. Coming up, Ben talks about his marriage and divorce from Katja Blickfeld, whom he co-created High Maintenance with. I don't know at the time that either of us could conceive of a creative relationship between two people who also found each other attractive as just being a creative relationship. I think we had to do the whole kit and caboodle. Hello, it's Anna, recording from the closet again. As we adjust to this new, physically distanced reality, we are releasing more frequent newsletters. So if you're not a subscriber, go to deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter and get in on that. So far this week, we've sent out a few newsletters that include updates from you about what you're thinking about and how your lives have changed. You're also telling us how you're being there for others. We started that conversation last week with a live call-in that I hosted with Kai Wright from the podcast, The United States of Anxiety. If you missed it, it's in your feed right now. It was great to talk with some of you who are facing real sudden change and uncertainty. Maddie canceled her wedding. Tierra is worried about her dorm housing and work-study job. Dale lives alone and worries about isolation for seniors like her. We shared tips for staying connected in this time of distancing. And Chef Samin Nosrat gave us the hot tip to use this time to start an herb garden to add a little freshness for our pantry-based meals at home. We are thinking about the best way to be with you in these wild, unprecedented times. One way is we want to talk with you all more. So send us an email to deathsexmoney at wnyc.org if you want to have a phone chat and tell us what you want to talk about. And our next episode, we're still figuring that out right now. But watch your feed and your email inbox. We are going to be with you through the duration. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. 
And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash DeathSexMoney. We are so excited to see you there. I'm Shankar Vedantam, here to tell you about a great mystery. That mystery is you. As the host of a podcast called Hidden Brain, I explore big questions about what it means to be human. Questions like, where do our emotions come from? Why do so many of us feel overwhelmed by modern life? How can we better understand the people around us? Discover your hidden brain. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Right before Ben Sinclair turned 25, he went to visit his brother in L.A. It was on that trip that he met Katya Blickfeld who was six years older than him and working in casting for TV shows. Basically, my brother and sister-in-law were friendly with Katya, and they were trying to set her up with another friend of theirs. And then I showed up at the party, and it was clearly on between her and I. Uh, I think if I hadn't been so, like, living from hand to mouth and feeling very scrappy and kind of scared... Uh-huh. Honestly, yeah, I didn't have uh, any safety net. I was really flying without a net at that time of my life. And this was a person who had been working on, you know, a working professional with like a real job with who I was like, wow, you're, you're, you've got clearly got good taste, but also you're a functional stoner like I am. And also like, it's very easy to talk to you. And very soon after I met her, all of that that fear that I was feeling was absorbed by her care. And I felt safe again. So I think that safety that I felt with her and the recognition that my life had never felt as good as this before her made the decision to marry her very easy for me. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you had found a way to have the kind of structure that you knew from growing up, but but on your terms in a way that like... Yes. Yeah. Exactly. That must have felt amazing. It did. Whose idea was it to get married? We were in bed. Uh, I brought up the notion that of of, well, I don't think I would can imagine marrying anybody else. Like, I can't imagine being with anybody else. And then she said, well, does that mean you want to get married? And I was like, well, are are you asking me to do that? And she goes, yes, I think I am asking you to do that. And I said, well, well, yes. And we were both very stoned at the time. 
we were actually recording ourselves. Uh, we had a flip can at the time, and we were using the flip cam all the time to document our romance. Wow. Uh, and if I watch the video from the day after that ask, and I have watched it before, it's kind of hard to watch because you can see me be like, wait, what did we just do? What do you notice? Mm, I have shifty eyes, and I'm looking down a lot. Um, I think I was like, oh, okay, 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 okay. Did you rewatch that after your marriage ended, or mm-hmm. when did you last I watched watch it. That? I watched it, I don't know, a couple of years ago. But also at the time when we filmed it, like, you know, I felt, I felt weird. Uh-huh. I felt that I had made a decision mm, stoned. Uh, and then I was sober the next day and reviewed that decision. Uh, and I continued the process because I still felt like it was the right and good thing to do. I hadn't had the respect from my family that I had until I met Katya and brought her home. And all of the siblings all of a sudden had their spouses and or their, their significant others. And there was a feeling of acceptance. I felt like I was finally uh, meeting the expectations that were had of me. Ben and Katya came up with the idea for High Maintenance together. They started making it as a web series in 2010, the same year they got married. The show grew a following online, and in 2015, HBO picked it up. But as the couple's success grew, their marriage suffered. Katya eventually came out as a lesbian. They separated in 2016. I think we both noticed... uh, early on some things that we both repressed and swept under the rug. So I think we carried in each of us for many years a feeling that something was off, but you know what? Life hasn't been as good as it is, has ever been up to now. And that com- got compounded when we started receiving a lot of accolade for our, our little art project. It felt like to give up this thing that we had always felt a little that was missing one very key ingredient was we just needed to suck it up and just let all of these good things that were happening to us just continue. Like it was a trade-off, like it was part of the pressure, just part of what was, it was Mm -hmm. a trade-off to have what you had built together. Yes, it was just like a feeling within us that was like you could convince yourself that's just a feeling. It's just a feeling. Uh, And if you tell yourself the story enough that like, oh, I have feelings and this is just a part of an anxious personality. This is just part of who I am. But the truth is like there are some things that clearly there was something going on for her that was much larger than just her and I. It was an identity thing. And clearly there was... uh, a feeling of me feeling unsafe that I didn't want to return to. I didn't trust that I could take care of myself, you know? I don't think I, I, don't think I got the, the confidence that I could be an adult male that people weren't worried about 
And I still struggle with not engaging in dependency. But, man, I am very stuck on the notion that just because something ends doesn't mean it's a failure. Uh, and I think it's there's this very unfair expectation on marriage that it lasts forever. I think that's so dumb. So many good things end. Great movies end. Seasons end. Like, what I'm noticing is the... The, the 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 pain of a lot of my friends who are getting divorced is like oh man i messed it up i didn't it didn't work out and i'm bad and and I, there must be something wrong with me because i couldn't make it work forever i guess you have to go through it and you have to come to that realization on your own but i really am a fan of of things ending now first uh, living back on your own did you did you move out and move into a place by yourself when your marriage was over no well we were sharing this huge apartment that we were able to land it was like a no joke 2000 square foot apartment wow. and i we made a deal that uh, i would sublet some places and then come back at a certain date it felt it was hard, man. Whoa, that's probably the hardest time of my life was the the fresh breakup, but then going to work with each other every day, and, and then not having a place to land. That yes, was and then living permanent. in some strange place that might have been the hardest time of my life. And then uh, after a couple of seasons on high maintenance, I had accrued enough money to buy a place. So I've bought a place, a one-bedroom, that, and it's the first time I've ever lived alone in my entire life, ever, ever. How, have you ever lived alone? Well, I was living alone. I, the first time I ever lived alone, I was divorced and in New York City, and I was stunned to realize that I'd never lived alone before. Mm -hmm. Most people don't. Yeah. It's, I mean, a lot of people do, but a lot of people, a lot, a lot, a lot of people, no one in my family has really lived alone for a long time. Was it unsettling to you at all to be alone? Yes. Loneliness is my greatest fear, for sure. No doubt that it is uh, my, definitely my greatest fear. Um, and coming to terms with being alone was huge. When you mentioned that you, you, like, you wanted to, to project a version of yourself that wasn't the divorced weed guy, um, like what feels... What feels ill-fitting about that caricature now for you? There's just so much more to it. I, I, I feel like uh, that the weed part, it, you would think it would be different, but people, it's still such a turnoff to so many people. Uh, but I have noticed lately that I'm starting to grow out of smoking weed. Uh, I'm starting to not feel relief when I'm stoned. It's more that I feel joy at the anticipation of getting stoned. But once I'm stoned, I'm like, ugh, why did I do this? And that has been a big thing for me lately of like understanding that addiction is continued use despite averse results. Uh, making that connection has 
been very helpful to me because I can be stoned and be like, I don't want to be stoned right now. So why am I still getting stoned and identifying that it's the anticipation, that Pavlovian bell ringing that's really, that I'm, I'm really after. It's the bell, not the treat. Mm-hmm. And maybe, Anna, maybe it's because I don't want to seem weak. Maybe it's because I don't want to seem like a person who's dulling their pain uh, with a substance. I don't know if that's it. I mean, it's probably a male wish to not appear weak at the end of the day. But I feel weakness. And I would rather be a person who is working on uh, joy than numbing of pain. I would like to be associated with joy. That's Ben Sinclair. You can watch High Maintenance on HBO. I love many, many of their episodes. There's a list of my top five in our show notes. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the studios of the investigative podcast Reveal in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Affie Yellow Duke, Emily Botin, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Ayo Osbamiro. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. And thanks to Nancy Bergstrom in Burridge, Illinois, who is a sustaining member of Death, Sex, and Money. Join Nancy and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And subscribe to our newsletter by going to deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. Are you replacing weed with something else? Believe it or not, I've been drinking more. Can you believe it? I can. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've, like, I've, I've, I don't drink by myself ever. Uh, but I, one night I did. And I'm like, whoa, look at that. Look at you. Look at you being all Don Draper and shit. What did you drink? Tequila. A glass of tequila. Weird. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. Mm-hmm.